Chapter 9 Not content with persecuting Christians in Jerusalem, Saul received permission from the high priest to seek out Christians in Damascus and bring them bound to Jerusalem. It was near Damascus that Saul was blinded by a vision of the risen Jesus. Told to go into Damascus for further instructions, Saul was led blind into the city where he waited for three days, neither eating nor drinking. The Lord appeared to a disciple named Ananias and sent him to restore Saul's sight and tell him what he would do as a chosen vessel. With his sight restored, Saul was baptized and resumed eating. For some days, Saul remained in Damascus and began immediately preaching in the synagogues that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, to the amazement of those who knew that he had come to the city to arrest Christians. After many days had passed, Saul barely escaped a plot to kill him by the Jews in Damascus. When he went to Jerusalem, where after Barnabas spoke on his behalf, he was accepted by the brethren. Another plot by the Jews to kill Saul prompted the brethren to bring him to Caesarea and send him on to Tarsus. The churches in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria then enjoyed peace and grew as they walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Luke then records two miracles performed by Peter. The first in Lydda, where Peter heals Aeneas, a man paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. This led many in Lydda and Sharon to turn to the Lord. And nearby Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha or Dorcas became sick and died. Having heard that Peter was in Lydda, the disciples sent for him to come without delay. Peter raised up Tabitha from the dead, leading many people in Joppa to believe on the Lord. Peter then remained in Joppa for many days, staying with Simon a tanner. Acts chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priests, and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any on this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. In spite of his great learning, Saul was spiritually blind, and did not understand what the Old Testament really taught about the Messiah. Like many others of his countrymen, he stumbled over the cross because he depended on his own righteousness and not on the righteousness of God. The Sanhedrin wielded great power not only in Jerusalem, but throughout the scattering of the Jews around the Roman Empire known as the Diaspora. This wide-ranging authority had been upheld by Rome for over a hundred years running at this point. This authority and power had its roots with Rome's treaty with Hasmoneans, this authority was put to the test in 138 BC involving Egypt and other Near East countries. Julius Caesar seems to have included this authority in his negotiations with the high priests. Warren Wearsby made this comment about Saul at this point in his life. Like many other rabbis, he believed that the law had to be obeyed before Messiah could come, and yet these heretics were preaching against the law, against the temple, and against the traditions of the fathers. Saul wasted the churches in Judea, Galatians 1.23, and then got authority from the high priest to go as far as Damascus to hunt down the disciples of Jesus. This was no insignificant enterprise, for the authority of the highest Jewish council was behind him, Acts 22, verse 5. Matthew Henry said this about Saul at this point in his life. It was natural to him in his constant business. He breathed out heat and vehemence. His very breath, like that of some venomous creature's, was pestilential. He breathed death to the Christians. He puffed at them in his pride, and he spit his venom at them in his rage. And then John Phillips had this observation about Saul. Saul was an intellectual giant, far-sighted enough to see that there could be no peaceful coexistence between militant Judaism and militant Christianity. 
Whatever his teacher Gamaliel might have advised about moderation, Saul saw the incompatibility of the two faiths. Either Judaism was right and Christianity was apostasy, or Christianity was right and Judaism was obsolete. Saul's birth, beliefs, and background all drove him into a head-on confrontation with the Christians. He concluded, logically enough from his own biased point of view, that Christians, that Christ was a blasphemer and Christianity a cult. Because Jesus of Nazareth was dead, nothing could be done about him. Christianity, however, was something else. The sooner it was dead and buried too, the better for everyone. Acts chapter 9, 3-6 And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. At midday he saw a bright light from heaven, and heard a voice speaking his name. The men with him fell also to the earth, and heard the sound. But they could not understand the words spoken from heaven. They stood to their feet in bewilderment, hearing Saul address someone, but not knowing what was happening. Saul of Tarsus made some wonderful discoveries that day. To begin with, he discovered to his surprise that Jesus of Nazareth was actually alive. Of course the believers had been constantly affirming this, but Saul had refused to accept their testimony. If Jesus was alive, then Saul had to change his mind about Jesus and his message. He had to repent a difficult thing for a self-righteous Pharisee to do. Saul also discovered that he was a lost sinner, who was in danger of judgment of God. Saul thought that he had been serving God when in reality he had been persecuting the Messiah. When measured by the holiness of Jesus Christ, Saul's good works and legalistic self-righteousness looked like filthy rags. All of his values changed. He was a new person because he trusted Jesus Christ. The Lord had a special work for Saul to do. The Hebrew of the Hebrews would become the apostles to the Gentiles. The persecutor would become a preacher, and the legalistic Pharisee would become the great proclaimer of the grace of God. Up to now, Saul had been like a wild animal kicking against the pricks. But now he would become a chosen vessel of honor for the Lord. Now, since we've touched on legalism a little bit in uh, Acts chapter 9, let's uh, delve a little bit deeper in studying the topic of legalism. And then we'll get back to studying Acts chapter 9. In Luke chapter 11, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? Philip Doddridge said this about this passage, But the Lord perceiving his thoughts, and knowing that in some circumstances a faithful reproof is the most valuable token of friendship and gratitude, said to him, I see you are now offended at my neglecting the ceremony of washing before dinner. I cannot but plainly tell you that you Pharisees are too much like those vain people that cleanse only the outside of the cup and dish, while the inside, which is of much greater importance, is left dirty and foul. For with regard to many of you, your inward part, even your very heart and conscience, is defiled. 
being full of rapine and of all the foulest kinds of pollution and wickedness. Paul, by his own testament, was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And here we see Jesus condemning the Pharisees for their legalistic tendencies. At this stage in Christ's ministry, when the religious leaders were bent on destroying him, why would a Pharisee invite him to his home for a meal? If he had been sincerely seeking truth, he would have talked with our Lord privately. It seems obvious that he was looking for an opportunity to accuse Jesus. And he thought he had it when a Jesus did not practice the ceremonial washing before eating. Knowing what the host was thinking, Jesus responded by giving a spiritual analysis of the Pharisee. The portion of God's word set before us is a very important section. We'll see Jesus' condemnation of the religious system that the Pharisees and scribes had built in his day. As we look to the condemnation of the religious leaders, let's be very careful that we don't write off these verses because we think that they don't apply to us. We have a root of Pharisaism living within all of us, and we must kill it and guard against allowing it to guide us. If we allow hypocrisy and legalism to dominate us, we will miss the gospel and miss true holiness. People are often so concerned about appearances, so concerned about abiding by rules, so concerned about doing things this particular way or that particular way, that they lose sight of the Bible and the truth of God's word and the truth of what Jesus taught. People are so concerned about appearances, especially that they are viewed as moral and upright, even when deep down they are not moral and upright. They're too concerned about the appearance of the outside of the cup, and they pay little concern to what's on the inside of the cup. Jesus warned us of cleaning the outside without cleaning the inside of Luke chapter 11. The Pharisees were often guilty of doing this, being over-concerned about outward appearances to the neglect on the inward heart, being over-concerned about the keeping of the law and neglecting that real, authentic relationship with the Lord. Appearing righteous, but being filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness, was spoken strongly against by Jesus in this passage. To avoid hypocrisy, we need to clean both the outside and the inside. Jesus did several things in our passage to the Pharisees. We will examine them one by one. First, he exposed their folly. Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 41. And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought to dine with him, and he went in and sat down to meet. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? But rather give alms of such things as ye have. And behold, all things are clean unto you. The basic error of the Pharisees was thinking that righteousness was only a matter of external actions, of keeping the law. And they minimized internal attitudes. We can apply that to today. Some churches, some preachers, place too much emphasis on keeping a bunch of rules that refer to the external and place little concern about what's going on internally in someone's heart. As long as they look the part, that seems to be all that is concerned about in some circles, in some churches, in some camps. They seem to place an inappropriate amount of attention on the outside of man and how we look, certain haircut, certain dress standards, and place not enough attention on the inward 
man, on the heart issues. We can look clean on the outside, but we can be filthy on the inside. They were very careful. These Pharisees were very careful to keep the outside clean. Paul was very careful to keep the outside clean. But the Pharisees ignored the wickedness within. Again, that could be applicable to today. There are many Christians that are careful to look the part, but they ignore the wickedness within their own heart. Now, the Pharisees seem to forget that the same God who created the outside also created the inside, the inner person that also needs cleansing. The Pharisee boasted of their giving, but they did not give what was within to the Lord. The way to make the outside pure is to make the inside pure. The way to clean up a dirty vocabulary is to not to brush your teeth, but to cleanse your heart. The folly of judging others. To understand these two verses here in Luke chapter 11 is to look back to the man-made tradition of ritual washing. Before they ate, the Pharisees invented a practice of ritual hand washing. They would pour water on one hand with a pitcher and take the pitcher in the other hand and pour the water on their other hand. Oftentimes, the water itself was not clean. It was simply a man-made tradition. Later, it developed in such a formal act that a servant would pour the water because in touching the handle on the container, they polluted themselves again. They developed, these Pharisees developed a very complicated and ritualistic way of washing their hands. Jesus wasn't playing along with the Pharisees' game. Judging others is a mark of a Pharisee. When man-made rituals are added to God's word, when man-made traditions are added to God's word, when man-made traditions become standards, and they're not based on God's word, but based on man's thinking, that is pharisaical. The Pharisees' man-made traditions had become so dominating in his life that he even began to judge Jesus. Jesus falls short of man-made standards of holiness. Imagine that. The Pharisees deemed Jesus not holy because he did not keep their man-made traditional standards and way of doing things. They deemed the Son of God, the most holy, the all-holy, the utterly pure Jesus is not holy. They judged Jesus as not holy because he did not keep their standards of outward appearance and outward acting. Could our churches today be guilty of judging someone not worthy based on outward appearances when on the inside that person is actually has a pure heart and pure conscience before God than the person that is judging them based on their outward appearance. Also notice the folly of looking on the outside and ignoring the inside. These religious leaders, these Pharisees, were more concerned with looking holy than actually being holy. This may in fact be the dish that the ritual hand washing was done in. It was shiny on the outside, but inside it was filthy dirty. It's much more important for the inside of a bowl or the inside of a dish to be clean than the outside. Here the point is that if the inside is clean, the outside will be clean as well. So Jesus goes outside of the accepted religious boundaries, marking himself as an outsider to the pharisaical system, and yet Luke calls him Lord. Christians imitated their Savior. Christians imitated their Christ. They accepted. They went outside the religious boundaries. They did not honor the pharisaical traditions. They honored. They sought to honor Christ with their life. And so Paul was judging them. And so Paul was breathing out venom and slaughter towards them because he just could not stand that they were not abiding by every instance of the law. He could not stand that they were not abiding by every additional tradition that's been added to the law. He could not stand it. He could not stand it. Here a fool is a person who looks the part on the outside, 
but in reality they are not what they pretend to be. Paul looked apart on the outside, but in reality he was not what he pretended to be. What about us? Are we more concerned with looking the part of a Christian, or are we more concerned with actually being a Christian? Are we more concerned with looking like we are the perfect Christian on the outside, or are we more concerned in our heart condition and making sure we are as much like Christ as we can be on the inside? Are you as concerned with holiness on Monday as you are on Sunday? Are you a Christian example to your co-workers, to your fellow students? Do you uphold biblical standards when around non-believers, or are you more apt to act like non-believers? These guys were very good at giving alms to the poor, so others could see them as they gave alms to the poor. The Pharisees were very good at putting on a show of being very religious and being very holy. Jesus says, why don't you do that sort of stuff on the inside? If you practice true worship and service on the inside, the outside will also worship God. So how do we avoid their folly? For us to avoid the hypocrisy of legalism, for us to avoid pharisaical tendencies in our own life, we need to clean both the outside and the inside. For this to succeed, it begins through conversion. By being born again, by getting saved, Jesus taught the necessity of the new birth in John chapter 3. This new birth this salvation, this being saved, involves our repentance, our turning from sin and turning to God. It involves our acknowledging our sinfulness. It involves us realizing we are not good enough to go to heaven on our own. It involves us placing our total faith and trust in Jesus Christ to come into our hearts and save us from our sins and the penalty of them. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not of yourselves. It's not how you act. It's not how you look. It's not the rules you keep, the traditions you follow. Not of yourselves. You are saved by the grace of God through faith. We need to obey the gospel. Mark 16, 15-16. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Acts 2, 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 3.19 Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins be blotted out. From the times of the refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. We must obey the gospel. We must not add to the gospel. We must not add works to the gospel. We must not add our traditions to the gospel. We must not add our opinions to the gospel. But we must simply obey the gospel. That is how we avoid pharisaical hypocrisy. We also avoid it through sanctification, putting off of the old man. Sanctification involves becoming holy or becoming set apart. This requires seriously addressing those things which defile a man. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 24, and he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. This is an ongoing process for Christians, putting off the old man, putting on the new man. It is not enough to get rid of the old man, we must replace it. Replace the old man by putting on the new man. By doing this, we'll be producing fruit of the Spirit in our life instead of the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19-23 Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, 
hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. We must be careful that what we teach is the word of God, and only the word of God. The Pharisees were not careful about this. The Pharisees were teaching their own traditions on top of the word of God, imposing their traditions, their rules, their opinions, what they thought was right on top of the word of God. If we were to avoid Pharisaical leanings in our in our life, we avoid pharisaical teachings in our church. We must be careful that we teach the Word of God and only the Word of God. Opinions and traditions must never be placed on the level of the truth of Scripture. That's why Scripture must try everything. When we make certain statements, they must originate from Scripture, not from our minds, not from what we think sounds good, not from what we think well, this is probably what they're meaning here. When we make certain statements, they must originate from Scripture, not from our minds. Not from what we think, oh, I'm going to help make the Scripture be even holier. I'm going to help make the Scripture be even better because I'm going to add this little tidbit on top of it. We must make certain our statements originate from Scripture, not from our minds. We must follow the example of the Bereans and check everything we are taught against scripture to make sure it is correct to make sure it is truth if it is not truth if it is tradition if it is preference we are not commanded by god to keep tradition we're not commanded by god to keep preferences we must abide by the word of god we cannot let tradition outdo the word of god we cannot let tradition take precedence over the word of god traditions are not bad as long as traditions line up with the word of god traditions can be wonderful but we cannot let tradition take precedence, take authority over the word of God. Acts 17, 10-11. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. This is how we need to study the word of God. Who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jew. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word of God with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. If you hear something in church, you hear something taught, Check it with the Word of God. If you hear something that doesn't quite seem right, check it with the Word of God. If you hear someone teach something that doesn't sound right, check it with the Word of God. If you notice, Jesus also in Luke chapter 3 aroused their anger. That's in verses 53 to 54. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they may accuse him. Hypocrites, Pharisees, do not want their sins exposed. It hurts their reputation. Instead of opposing the Lord, these men should have been seeking his mercy. They deliberately began to attack him with gotcha questions in hopes they could trap him in some heresy and then arrest him. What a disgraceful way to treat the Son of God. Don't be surprised if Pharisees in your life or hypocrites today do the same thing to you. Don't be surprised if they try to arouse your anger. Don't be surprised if you arouse their anger. If you are truly standing for the word of God, 
you will arouse anger in hypocrites and Pharisees around you. Unfortunately, there are religious systems today that are very much like the system defended by the scribes and Pharisees. The leaders interpret and apply the word of God for their followers, and you are not permitted to ask embarrassing questions or raise objections. The leaders exploit the people and do little or nothing to ease their burdens. Worst of all, the leaders use the system to cover up their own sins. God's truth should set us free, but these groups only lead people into more and more bondage. Galatians 5.1 Stand ye therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Doing right often causes you to be considered the troublemaker. Those who live in sin can only see those who do right as the troublemaker. When you do right, don't be surprised when you are considered the problem by the Pharisees. Doing right often causes you to stand alone. Most people who stand for right often stand alone. Most people who stand against tradition that has been implied on top of Scripture, that people are, are placing greater importance on the tradition than the actual Scripture. Most people who stand against those kind of traditions often stand alone. The cheerleaders are often on the other side. And you are just going to have to come to grips with this if you are going to continue standing for the Lord and for His Word. Doing right always brings favor with God. You may find yourself in a lonely position for doing right, for standing for the Word of God against a tradition that's been implied on top of the Word of God. You may find yourself standing by yourself if you're going against tradition that people place give precedence to over the Word of God. But standing for the Word of God and standing for God always brings favor with him. People are often too concerned about appearances. Pharisaical people today are too concerned about appearances. Paul was too concerned about appearances, too concerned about the keeping of the letter of the law when he was violating the heart of the law with his heart. People are too concerned about appearances, especially that they are viewed as moral and upright, when down deep they are disgusting sinners. Jesus warned us of cleaning the outside without cleaning the inside here in Luke chapter 11. The Pharisees and Paul were often guilty of doing this, being over-concerned about how they looked to others to the neglect of their inward heart and soul. We just saw that appearing righteous, but being filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness was spoken strongly against by Jesus. How Paul was living in his life at this point had previously been spoken strongly against by Jesus, which might have been another thing that was just vehemently convicting him. He was kicking against the pricks, kicking against the conviction. He could not take it, so he's raging against the Christians to try to get rid of this conviction. To avoid hypocrisy, we need to clean both the outside and the inside. Are we clean on the outside while dirty on the inside? Are we keeping the rules of Christianity? Are we following the man-made traditions of Christianity? Are we abiding by man-made traditional beliefs and not staying true to Christ, not staying true to his word? Are we, do we have a filthy inside? while abiding by the man-made rules and traditions on the outside. If you are more concerned about being clean on the inside than looking clean on the outside, the hypocrites around you will be aroused to anger towards you. They will not like it when you stand for the truth of God's word and being internally clean vessels to the detriment of being outwardly clean to man. Be more concerned that God sees us clean on the inside than checking off all the boxes on a religious checklist so you can appear to others to be clean on the outside.